you can use hypnosis to mentally rehearse and practice what you want to do and how you want to do it. Athletes are inhibited from their peak performance by sort of extraneous anxieties or concerns that impair their brain-body connection. Don't let her get ahead of me. You know, oh my God, she is ahead of me. And instead of focusing on how you connect with your body and how to get your body to do its best, you're now worrying about what she's doing. If you're worried about how you're performing, you're probably not performing as well as you could. The coach of the Stanford women's swim team noticed that some of his best swimmers were swimming better times in practice than they were in meets. So I had them go into a state of self-hypnosis and practice doing their best race. Focus on what you're for, not what you're against. And so they found that it was helpful to them that to practice what you want to do, not what you're afraid of, help them to swim better and swim faster. This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of Mindset Rx and your host. And I believe that we should spend less time imagining what could go wrong and invest more time into imagining our perfect performances. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay, that's part of the deal. It's how I respond to it. Today on the Limitless Athlete Podcast, you'll be listening to a conversation that I had with Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is one of the United States' most respected experts in the clinical uses of hypnosis. He is Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Studies at Stanford University, and he has over 40 years of clinical research. Basically, when it comes to psychiatry, hypnosis, he knows what he's talking about and he's someone worth listening to. This conversation is all about hypnosis for two kinds of athletes those who want to address their baseline mental health so addressing things like sleep stress anxiety and the like and those who want to unlock new levels of performance what i discovered through research in this podcast and having this conversation is that many of the tools that we dismiss instantly are actually hugely valuable assets honestly i'd always considered hypnosis as a kind of trickery but also some people are very susceptible to it and i'd seen stage hypnosis and i was kind of dubious of it let's say in dr spiegel's words though all we're doing is accessing a different state of consciousness of intense absorption you can use this pliable state of consciousness to enhance your mindset in ways that you wouldn't normally be accessible to you and will also cover some of the foundations of hypnosis and what to look for in a good practitioner as well as how to utilize self-hypnosis which i think is a pretty cool tool for most people as a quick piece of housekeeping, our coaches special podcast series is still running and next week we'll be going into the kind of the stories behind burnout and not enjoying training and financial struggles and we'll be starting the process of what to do about that. So let's get on with the show with Dr. David Spiegel. And we'll kick things straight off um, by welcoming you to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, Tom. I'm glad to be here. So, Dr. Spiegel, 
Can you tell us how, I think it's an interesting story, how you found hypnosis and how that was involved in your family uh, from, from the word go. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to, for our audience to, to learn about that. Sure, Tom. Uh, it, it, it's something of a genetic illness in my family. My, uh, uh, my dad um, was uh, in training. I'd gone to medical school, was in training as a psychiatrist. And at the time, everybody who was anybody wanted to be a psychoanalyst. So he's getting psychoanalytic training. And uh, it was also around the time of Pearl Harbor, and um, he was getting ready to be shipped overseas as a battalion surgeon. Actually, they needed docs um, on the battlefield. And um, his analyst, who normally didn't say much of anything, um, said, hey, would you like to learn about hypnosis at the end of his analytic session? And my father was shocked and wondered if he, he'd said something during the session that made the analyst think he needed it. And he said, no, there's a there's a, a, a Austrian uh, psychiatrist who can't himself serve because he's not an American, but who knows about hypnosis and wanted to train young army doctors. A guy was named Gustav Schaffenberg. And he was a forensic psychiatrist who had had smallpox as a kid. It was before we had the vaccine. And he had a big spot on right in the middle of his forehead from uh, a smallpox lesion. And he noticed that when he was talking to prisoners, interviewing them, suddenly they would start staring at the spot in his head and their eyes would close and they'd go into some kind of altered mental state. So he got interested in that and started studying hypnosis. Um, and so he taught my father and a number of his colleagues and my father wound up in combat using hypnosis to help people with acute pain when they had been wounded um, he used it to help people with combat stress reactions. There was one soldier who suddenly lost the ability to, to move his legs. And he first examined him for an injury, couldn't find one. And it was, it was a forced retreat. They were being overrun. And it turned out that one of his buddies was, was mortally wounded. And he felt terribly guilty for leaving his, his buddy's body. And so my father hypnotized him and said, I want you to picture your buddy's image now. And he starts to cry. He's very upset. He said, I want you to notice something. He's face down. His boots are pointing down, which means he's already dead. There's nothing you could do to save him. And the guy started walking again. It was his, his, his convert, what we would call a conversion disorder was one in which he was just sort of, without thinking about it, telling his body, you can't move because you shouldn't leave your buddy. So he found it very helpful. And when he came back to the States, he was uh, ordered by one senior analyst to stop using hypnosis because Freud started his career with hypnosis, but stopped using it. And who are you to do something that Freud didn't decided not to do? And then he had a wonderful supervisor named Frieder from Reichman, um, a famous analyst, who said, what are you so precious about your reputation for? You're just starting your career. You're going to teach a course on hypnosis at the Analytic Institute. And I know you're going to do it because I'm going to take it. I, I want to learn about this. So that got him to continue using it. And he began to find that he was getting better results uh, in a few sessions of hypnosis than in, in weeks or years of uh, daily psychoanalysis. And um, so gradually he switched his career. As you can imagine, the dinner table conversations were pretty interesting. And every once in a while, when he was making a teaching film, I would get to watch him 
use hypnosis and it sure looked interesting. And so when I got to medical school, um, I took a hypnosis course at uh, Mass General Hospital. And um, I still remember the day that I, I think determined that I was going to work on this as a career. I was at Children's Hospital in Boston and a nurse um, said, "Your Spiegel, your next patient is down in room 362 and uh, she's an asthmatic in status asthmaticus. She can't breathe properly. And I could follow the sound of the wheezing down the hall. And uh, I get in the room and there's this um, pretty 15 year old redhead bolt upright in bed, knuckles white, struggling for breath. I can hear the wheezing, her mother's standing there crying. And we had tried subcutaneous epinephrine a couple of times. It hadn't worked. I didn't know what to do next. They were talking about putting her under general anesthesia and starting her on steroids. And I said, uh, you want to learn a breathing exercise? And she nodded. So I got her hypnotized and um, she closed her eyes and she was seeming to go into some kind of a different mental state. And then I realized I hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet, and I didn't know what to say. So I just said something very sophisticated. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, um, she's not wheezing anymore. She's lying back in bed. Her knuckles aren't white. Her mother stopped crying. The nurse ran out of the room. <clears throat> and my intern came to find me, and I thought he was going to pat me on the back and say, nice job, Spiegel. Um, <laughs> He said, the nurse has filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. And um, I, uh, Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws. That's not on the list. And her mother was standing next to me when I did it. He said, well, you're going to have to stop doing this because, um, uh, and I said, why? He said, it's dangerous. And I said, well, you're going to put her on steroids and give her general anesthesia. And I'm talking to her as dangerous. You know, I don't think so. He said, well, um, you're going to have to stop doing it. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, you can take me off the case if you want. But until, well, as long as she's my patient, I'm not going to tell her anything that I know isn't true. Now, she'd been hospitalized every month for three months in status asthmaticus. She had one subsequent hospitalization, but then went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. Um, and the the intern went and talked to the chief resident and the attending over the weekend to decide what to do and they finally came up with a radical idea they said let's ask the patient you know i don't think they'd ever done that before <laughs> and uh and she said oh i like this so we kept doing it and um she did extremely well and i thought that anything that can help a patient that much that fast that safely um and violate a non-existent massachusetts law uh, and frustrate the head nerves had to be worth looking into. So <laughs> I've been doing it ever since. You mentioned psychoanalysis there. I'm interested in the kind of the overlap between them. Um, where does one become the other? Are there any like kind of big differences? Is, is hypnosis an offshoot of psychoanalysis? Are there any kind of uh, differences that we need to be aware of? Um, oh, there are big differences. But actually, Freud did begin his career uh, with hypnosis and, and where the common ground was, um, uh, was the idea of exploring parts of the mind that are not immediately accessible to consciousness sometimes. Now, um, and Freud was doing that. He, in fact, in his uh, autobiography, he wrote, I was helping um, a young woman by tracing her attacks of physical problems um, 
to uh, some traumatic memories. And so he had learned to put people into a state of hypnosis and help them go back and recall things that they may or may not have thought about consciously. Um, and uh, he said during this hypnosis session, one of them, she, she reached up and tried to hug me and give me a kiss. And he said, I was modest enough not to attribute this event to my own irresistible personal attractiveness. And um, I discovered the mysterious element at work beneath hypnosis. That to him was transference. The idea that we have feelings about people in our present life that relate to feelings we had about earlier people earlier in our life, like mother and father and, and siblings and things like that. And that's why psychoanalysis and he, he in order to deal with this, um, uh, he decided instead of using hypnosis, he would sit behind the couch. We had a couch in analysis because it was he was using it for hypnosis originally. And uh, he would have people then talk about their fantasies and feelings and project them onto him. And he would be a kind of blank screen on which they would project feelings. And the feelings they had about him, he figured, must have something to do with the way they grew up and were raised by their parents. So he focused on developing a deeper understanding of the sort of relationship patterns that you thought of while you were lying on the couch in hypnosis. And that would teach you something about the problems you have, the distortions you have in the way you see and experience people now based on your early life experience. Now, um, so the analysis moved away from the use of the state of hypnosis itself uh, in the direction of learning and understanding more about the relationship patterns you had acquired as you grew up. Um, we hypnosis um, can be used, though, to get people into an altered mental state and change the way they focus on things, the way they manage their emotions and their body. Um, so it was a real divergence in the uh, understanding of what psychotherapy ought to be. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. They're just rather different. But they started with the same ability to alter your mental state. It seems like the psychological world is coming round to altered states more frequently now. Um, if you look at the psychedelics coming into um, psychotherapy, yes. um, if you look at breath work, um, meditation is kind of you can access altered states. Um, what, yeah, what do you think of that? I think it's a fascinating uh, point, Tom. Um, I think we have underestimated the importance of our ability to alter mental states. And, you know, the most obvious example is sleep and wakefulness, you know, and, you know, as you help athletes that getting a good night's sleep is a crucial part of preparing yourself and your body for functioning well the next day. Um, the same nasty email that you shouldn't have read at 11 o'clock at night that got you all upset, you know, what the hell am I going to do about this? You know, when you, you get a good night's sleep and you wake up in the morning and say, oh, that, yeah, I know how to deal with that guy. And you just do it. Um, changing mental state is a powerful way of changing your perspective, seeing things from a different point of view. And I do think um, that, for example, the the very interesting work with, with psychedelics now, psilocybin has been used to help dying cancer patients. And, you know, I would have thought the last time you'd want to take a psychedelic, you know, and have the fear of a bad trip is when you're dying, when you're losing control anyway, you think it would freak people out. But I've done work with dying cancer patients for many, many years. 
And uh, one of them said to me um, about death, and they watched one another die in the group, you know, so they were facing the worst. And I had people warn me that I'd be demoralizing them because they'd see other people die of the same illness they had. And, you know, death is, however, not a novel concept to a cancer patient. You know, they see half of all people diagnosed with cancer will live to die of something else, but everybody who's got it thinks they're going to die. So one of my patients, as we were grieving someone who had died, said, you know, um, uh, I'm thinking about death in this group the way you feel when you're looking to, looking into the Grand Canyon, but you're afraid of heights. She says, you know, um, if you fell down, it would be a disaster, but you feel better about yourself because you're able to look. That's mm-hmm. how I feel about death. I can't say I feel serene, but I can look at it. And people who take psilocybin and talk about their death from cancer say something very similar, that I just saw it from a different perspective. You know, I understood it as a, a terrible and irreversible thing and a loss, but it helped me to appreciate my experience of being and what that meant and that I have that now and I've had that. And uh, it just made them less overwhelmingly frightened of the illness, coupled with good psychotherapy to help them deal with it. And 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 so I see this with hypnosis, that that you go into a different mental state, you see the same problem from a different point of view, and it gives you a different perspective. It's not like you're trapped in a bad situation. It's that you're confronting a bad situation, uh, but you can see it from different points of view and, and handle it differently. And that's part of the power of hypnosis. And, and breath work, too, is a similar thing. We're studying that now. Um, and we're finding that people just, you know, breathing is a very interesting thing. And you, you as athletes think about that all the time. But, you know, uh, breathing is particularly interesting because it's something that we do automatically. You know, it, it, fortunately, we don't have to think about it to breathe, but we can readily control it. And there aren't many physical processes that are right on that edge of control where it can go on automatic pilot if, if you don't do anything about it, but you can control it quite a bit. And so I think it's also a pathway into regulating how we control our brain and our body. It seems to me like altered states, they seem to, in some ways, reveal things that wouldn't, well, we've said this already, that it wouldn't be accessible, but it seems like you, you peel back a kind of a film or a lens um, that magnifies it. But that is coming from a man who has very little experience in this world and is clearly an observer. So like, is, is it that we're like removing biases? Is it that we're removing kind of preconditioned, predetermined um, films? Well, it it may be. I, I'd say you're altering biases. You know, there's no there's no unbiased experience or perception. There are always there's always a framework around it. You know, Kant wrote that um, it, it, it's mainly the passing of time that is the filter through which we have experiences. But there are no pure experiences. It's all processed through our brain. But where I think it helps us is you you have them from a different point of view. And so it begins to help you perceive and understand the biases you have when you're in one condition, if you're in another one. And and temporal processing is one actually that you change in hypnosis, that when people get deeply absorbed in hypnosis, um, they often find that minutes or even hours can go by and they're not aware of it in the same way. And that's like the experience you have when an athlete is in a good performance or, or a musician is in a good performance where 
they're not, you know, counting the seconds or the minutes. They're just having the experience. And sometimes they're surprised when it's over, you know, that you're so engaged in what you're doing that you're not aware of the passage of time. Okay. That's yeah. Really interesting. Like it's, it uh, speaks to flow states um, and experiencing those moments where like, I, I get in skiing occasionally when I'm doing well. And it's like um, it's, each moment is both expanded and contracted when you, it's like the, the feel and the sensation is expanded. Like you can sense more. It's almost like slow uh, time slows down. And then throughout the kind of um, throughout the the length and duration of the spirit, that seems exceptionally short. What's happening on a, I suppose, biological level when we go under hypnosis. Uh, Sure. And I've, I've, uh, heard Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book Flow, mm-hmm. talk about these flow states. And one of the things he mentions is they're autotelic experiences. They're things where you do it just because you love doing it. Mm-hmm. It's not, it, not that you have to get something done. Um, what seems to happen in hypnosis and what happens, uh, you know, skiing is a good example. Um, the, uh, I mean, one of the, uh, I mean, compared to the horror that, that Putin is inflicting on the world now, um, uh, he had the Sochi, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Sochi, two Olympics back. And there was virtually no snow there. It was kind of like what the story was in China. And so there was so little snow that the, the skiers had only one practice run on the route that they were going to compete on. And so what a number of our skiers, like Bode Miller did, uh, where they, they went up to the top of the, the run and just stood there, looked up, closed their eyes, and they did an imaginary run all the way down the mountain every move, every turn. And the American team did extremely well that year. And so what happens in hypnosis is a state of intense absorption. It's highly focused attention. People who are very hypnotizable tend to be the kind of people who get so caught up in a good movie that they enter the imagined world. They don't experience themselves as part of the audience. They experience themselves as part of the movie. And they don't judge it. They don't evaluate it. They just experience it. And it's that same kind of intensity that a good athlete gets into. And that's what our skiers did there. There are two other things that go along with that. Uh, one is, is dissociation. So you put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. So the price of this intense absorption or flow-like experience is that you disconnect from other experiences. Um, and that can be, you know, very valuable in not worrying about things that you don't need to waste mental resources worrying about. Um, but, and it's why sometimes athletes get injured in the course of a game or of what they're doing and don't even realize that they've been hurt, uh, until you know, the game's over and the coach says, you know, your right ankle is swollen. What happened? Um, so, and right now, for example, I'm hoping Tom, that you're so interested in what I'm saying that you're not aware of the sensations in your bottom touching that chair you're sitting in. Mm. If you were, we can stop the interview now. It's okay. But um, that we do it naturally. Our brain is very good at filtering in what we want to pay attention to and filtering out things we can ignore. And you do that more intensely in a state of hypnosis. The third thing is what I'm, uh, it's been called suggestibility, but that kind of tends to put people off. I'd say it's more a kind of cognitive flexibility. It's easy in a hypnotic state to see things from the other person's point of view, to not worry or judge, you know, why is he telling me to do this? What does it mean to just do it and think about it later? And that's where people. Oh, there we go. We're back. You got it. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's my it says about, my internet connection is unstable. Sorry. Okay. That's okay. I missed about twenty seconds, maybe. Ironically, just when you said that I may be losing concentration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. You did see. It was a hypnotic suggestion. It works. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, my connection looks okay, so I don't know what happened. <clears throat> so, what I was uh, saying is. So there are these three components to the hypnotic experience. It's intense absorption uh, in the focus of your attention, what you're doing, the way you describe, Tom, when you're skiing. Um, uh, dissociation, putting outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness as sort of the price of being able to focus that intently. Uh, and um, then what has been called suggestibility, the idea that you'll just do what people say. You don't actually lose the ability to um say no i don't want to do that but you're less likely to judge and evaluate it and i think of it as a kind of mental flexibility the capacity to see things from a different point of view to say hey well that's an interesting idea maybe i should try that see what it's like uh, and people who are more hypnotized will tend to be able to go into states like that more and it makes you more it, it makes you a good candidate for psychotherapy because you're more open to you know, taking in the therapist's perspective and not arguing with it or disagreeing it, just trying it out and see what it feels like. So it's a, it's a state of focused attention, um, uh, dissociation of discomfort or uh, worries or comparisons um, or physical discomfort that might impair your performance. Uh, and uh, it, it's a, a suspension of critical judgment that allows you to see things from a different point of view. How can we, I, I suppose you're, um, I'm guessing from the name, your father invented the spiegel Eye test. So like, how can we test yeah. susceptibility with that or um, like how likely so the, you are to, yeah. This is a kind of rough, rapid guess of how hypnotizable someone might be. There's an old Zen practice, Tom, called looking at the third eye. And what you do when you do that is you close your eyes and you look up to the top of your head. That's supposed to be the third eye. And um, what you do in the eye roll test is as you look up, you look up uh, past your eyebrows all the way up. And as you look up, you slowly close your eyes. Um, and if you want to try it, I can tell you what your eye roll score is. So look up past your eyebrows all the way up. Good. And as you keep looking up high as you can, slowly close your eyes. Close, close. All right. So yours you can open now your yours is a two out of four it's basically the capacity to keep looking up as you close your eyes it's hard to do because you're asking the cranial nerves that control eye movement to do conflicting things to suspend um to, to pull your eyelids down while you're keeping your eyes up it's not an easy thing to do um, and we find that it's roughly correlated with your ability to experience hypnosis the highs all you see is the whites of their eyes, sclera. You don't see any iris at all. And people who aren't hypnotizable have to bring their eyes all the way down before they close their eyelids. And it seems to be a physical capacity to disconnect from the usual rules and do contradictory things with your eyes. But I think there's something else, too. We're As humans, we're very visual creatures. Um, our major defense is vision, and the whole back of our brain is devoted to processing visual images. Um, and that's the way we protect ourselves, the way we know whether to fight or flee. You know, there are, you know, dogs and bears smell a whole lot better than we do. And, and eagles see far better than we do. And 
many animals can hear far better than we do. But our vision is for us our predominant safety sensory experience. And we think that it's the capacity to remain conscious, not go to sleep, because the other thing when you're moving, when you're changing your eye positions is when you go to sleep, you're being alert, but turning inward. And we think it's a, it's a way of measuring quickly how much people do that. Can you train it? You can train people to use hypnosis better, but you can't really change the eye roll very much. People just can't do it. They can do it or they can't. You can train how effective you are at getting into hypnotic states, right? But you can't, like, but it's still going to be a challenge to some people and easier for other people. Yes, that's right. Hypnotizability itself is a very stable trait. Um, it's uh, by the time it, most eight year old kids are in trances all the time. You know, you, you ask your eight year old son to come in for dinner and he's outside playing, he doesn't hear you, you know. He's, um, and that's why for children, work and play are all the same thing. You know, they just, uh, in fact, it's a shame that we turn them into little adults before they should, because they just enjoy everything they're doing. You know, they get absorbed in it. Um, but in adolescence, as we learn what the psychologist PIJ called formal operations, um, you learn to sort of put thinking and logic higher on the hierarchy of experience and just pure experience lower. So you have to understand and explain things. That kind of thinking is less hypnotic-like. And by the time you're 20 or 21, your degree of hypnotizability is what it's going to be by the time you're 50. Um, there was a study done at Stanford, uh, former undergrads who had been had their hypnotizability measured in their Psych 1 class were blindly retested to the original score. And there was a 0.7 test-retest correlation. Now that's more stable than IQ is over a 25-year interval. So you can't change your hypnotizability much, but you can change how you use it. And uh, there are about a third of adults who just aren't very hypnotizable. And for them, I often say, let's do something else. But about two-thirds are at least somewhat and about 15% extremely hypnotizable. And it's more how you use it. So I change the strategies I use based on the degree of hypnotizability that I've measured with not just the eye roll, but a whole five minute test that we call the hypnotic induction profile that I can administer remotely on Zoom uh, or in person. And it helps me guide people differently. So if you're very hypnotizable, I just say, let's just go there and do it. And here's how you do it. And they do it. For less hypnotizable people, it's more a mixture of cognitive behavioral kind of approach with the shift into the hypnotic state. And it's more gradual and structured, but you can still make very good use of hypnosis. A quick side note for you. If you're a coach and you find yourself struggling with coaches burnout, losing the love of training and coaching, being stuck in your career, getting buy-in from your athletes or lack thereof, or simply knowing that you're struggling with your mindset and you'd like some assistance in growing it and training it, then subscribe to the show because next week we are beginning a three-part series on how to master your mindset, how to start training your mindset as a coach. And we're also going to be delivering some tips on how to coach athletes in their mindset. This is something I know a lot of you want to work on. So subscribe to the show. But for now, let's get back to the podcast. For those who are wanting to to try it out, 
what kind of benefits could athletes um i suppose accrue from it and i suppose we're looking at two different elements of it there's the performance-based element and then there's the kind of the mental health element too sure um the performance-based element um is basically you can use hypnosis to mentally rehearse and practice what you want to do and how you want to do it uh, very often athletes are inhibited from their peak performance by sort of extraneous uh, anxieties or concerns that impair their brain-body connection. Um, if you're worried about how you're performing, you're probably not performing as well as you could. And an example was that the coach of the Stanford women's swim team, which is very good, um, noticed that some of his best swimmers were swimming better times in practice than they were in meets. Now, you tend to think that, you know, the meet your best is going to come out when you have to perform. But good athletes know that that's not always the case. And he found that they were, you know, and swimming is an interesting competitive sport in that it doesn't really matter what your opponent is doing, you know, and that's different from water polo or basketball or football or anything else. You know, you it really doesn't matter. You know, she's just swimming in the lane next to you. But they were distracting themselves from wondering how they were doing in comparison. Now, sometimes that competition, you know, can stir even better performance from you, but sometimes worse. Sometimes you get, you think, oh my God, you know, she's, you know, half, uh, half ahead, uh, ahead of me and she's gaining on me. And, you know, you, you, instead of swimming better, you swim worse because you're worried about her instead of connecting as well as you can to your own body. So I had them go into a state of self-hypnosis and practice doing their best race. And just go over and over. You focus on what you're for, not what you're against. It's one of the things that people who use hypnosis know. You know, the worst thing to say to someone is don't think about purple elephants, right? You know, that's what you think about. So don't don't let her get ahead of me. You know, oh, my God, she is ahead of me. And instead of focusing on how you connect with your body and how to get your body to do its best, you're now worrying about what she's doing. And so they found that it was helpful to them that to practice what you want to do, not what you're afraid of, um, help them to swim better and swim faster. So that's one example where you can use hypnosis to focus on uh, sort of experiencing in your mind the best performance you can do and then doing it, affiliating with your best rather than worrying about your worst. Uh, and hypnosis can be very helpful with that. Now, in terms of training it can help you just kind of program yourself to to do what you want to do to do the practice you want to do uh, it can be very helpful to get in getting to sleep that you can uh, learn to you know physical arousal and tension is very important when you're an athlete competing but it's an enemy when you want to go to sleep and yet sometimes you know we're we evolve to fight or flee if we're threatened and if you're trying to sleep, but you're worried about something, your your body naturally tenses up, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your cortisol goes up, and it makes it harder to sleep, not easier. So you can learn in hypnosis to use the dissociation to separate your physical experience from your mental experience. So I have people go into a state where they imagine they're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. Get your body comfortable there. And then picture in your mind's eye an imaginary screen, like a movie screen, TV screen, or a piece of clear blue sky, and picture on it what it is you're thinking about as if you're watching your own movie. But with a rule that no matter what you see on the screen, 
you keep your body floating and comfortable. And just the ability to control your physical arousal allows you to experience whatever thoughts you're having uh, without interfering with your ability to sleep. Seems like right there, there's parallels in meditation and in learning to see your thoughts and emotions as something you experience as opposed to something you are. Um, and that seems to bring a kind of a degree of separation or dissociation, I suppose the word, um, where you are kind of, yeah, not absorbed by your state and you can observe it. Uh, yes, to that extent, the sort of open presence, non judgmental awareness that you cultivate in meditation is something like. Uh, this ability to focus and dissociate uh, in hypnosis. In both cases, you're not fighting the thought, you're allowing yourself to experience it, but in a different way. And the fact that you're not fighting against it actually helps reduce the physical arousal as well. So it's related to mindfulness. It's not the same thing, but it's... Okay. Is there um, a way that it seems like a lot of the problems that we encounter when we're working with athletes is that kind of overthinking essentially how would an athlete deal with overthinking uh through hypnosis uh well you can use it as a, a sort of comforting preparation state in which you can put yourself into a state of self-hypnosis and um practice the you know what you're going to be doing the competition or the uh, athletic experience you're going to have um and rather than overthinking often involves kind of anxiety about not doing it just right or making this mistake or that mistake. And you can use it instead to focus on what you're for, not what you're against. To say, when I'm really, you can, for example, if you're a runner, you can go back and rerun your best race. You know, you can just feel what you felt when you took off from the starting blocks and as you were moving, as you were building speed, as you were maintaining speed how in tune with your body you felt and find it an enjoyable, not a pressured experience. Because when you're really performing at your best, you're in tune with your body, you're in sync with it, you're helping it do what it can do. And if you focus on those kind of paradigm experiences where you felt really good doing what you were doing, you'll probably do it better. And so hypnosis can help you prepare for uh, and prime yourself to run your best race. What about mental health? What about the kind of the general day-to-day mental health? Well, it can be particularly helpful for stress and anxiety reduction. Um, uh, it can, uh, uh, very often we compound our, uh, mental discomfort by, worrying in a way that is not particularly constructive uh, by allowing yourself to kind of immerse yourself in self-doubt or uh, self-criticism. Um, and it can help you to separate your physical from your mental arousal when you do that. And just, uh, I sometimes have people in hypnosis use a split screen where kind of like the zoom screen where we're on right now, where on, on one, you keep your body floating and comfortable. And on one side, picture a problem, something that troubles you about yourself or a uh, performance you did that you didn't like. Um, but just face it without letting your body get all caught up in it. And then use the right side as your problem-solving screen. Say, well, what's one thing I could do to do that better? Um, and picture yourself doing it. So you can visualize uh, possible solutions to an obstacle or a problem that you've had. and 
think through experience what it would be like to do it differently. Again, with the rule that you keep your body floating and comfortable. And so it can be a way of dealing with, you know, excessive self-criticism or self-doubt uh, and just seeing things from a different point of view. Do you have to have done some kind of psychoanalytic or um, I suppose psychological investigation before experimenting with hypnosis um it seems like it works best in tandem um but do you have to kind of know what beliefs are going on know your limits or is it something that you can use without that um you you that can certainly help and if you have some perspective on the sort of typical traps you get into or you know cognitive distortions or expectations that are unrealistic uh that can help you Hypnosis is not in it of itself a therapy. It's just a state. It's a mental state of highly focused attention. So there are a lot of therapeutic strategies that can be combined with hypnosis. And if you have some experience of psychotherapy or some understanding of how you got to the problems you've got, hypnosis can help intensify your ability to uh, deal with them differently. On the other hand, it's not necessary. And that's why. Uh, you know, I, I used to think that when I started out, I thought that, you know, people should only experience hypnosis at the hands of someone who is a trained professional. But I realized having used hypnosis with about 7000 people in my career, um, that there are things that I've learned that I think I can share with people who I'm not going to meet. And uh, for that reason, we built Reverie, this uh, digital interactive hypnosis app where um, I give a series of instructions to help with problems like stress, uh, enhancing focus, uh, dealing with pain, um, uh, helping people, um, you know, with bad habits like smoking or overeating. Uh, and we use it uh, uh, in a way that I ask a question in the course of the hypnotic instructions the person uh, gives us an answer. We use AI to analyze their response, and then they will get the next instruction. So it's like what happens in my office when I'm helping someone along. And so you have virtual me giving instructions based on your response. And we're finding, actually, that it can be quite effective. Um, and so it can help to have outside therapeutic support, but it isn't necessary. And in fact, People who are hypnotized will go into hypnotic-like states all the time. As I mentioned, you know, getting caught up in a good movie or reading a novel is a hypnotic-like state. So it's a naturally occurring normal state. And um, it is quite possible to use a, a technique like reverie to help yourself um, use, learn to use self-hypnosis. And it's always there for reinforcement uh, when you need it. So if people are interested, um, you can go to the app store and uh, go to get the Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I app. Um, or there's a website, www.reverie.com, where you can learn more about it. And um, so it's, it's something that um, can help people who have had the benefit of good psychotherapy. Uh, but we try to structure each type of exercise in a way that, makes sense in and of itself and that people can try and see if they can benefit from doing that. I'm very much looking forward to, to trying it. Um, like I said, new phone on the way, going to use it as an iOS at the moment. And you said it's going to be on Android um, later this year. That's correct. Fantastic. Um, to make the most of that, what do you need in place? Like to, I suppose in the, this applies to um, kind of 
hypnosis with a facilitator as well. Like, what do you need in place to to make the most of it? Um, just uh, you know, have some idea of what your problem is and what you want to do about it. Um, be mentally clear. Don't have uh, you know drugs on board. Um, anything that dulls your attention is likely to interfere with your hypnotic. Does that ability. include caffeine? Um, a little bit of caffeine is okay. If you're really wired, uh, it'll just be hard or harder to focus. But uh, if you know you've had your morning cup of coffee uh, and it's got you alert, that's okay. Where are the limits of hypnosis? Because like we touched very briefly on stage hypnosis and what people think is possible. But, like there's also, I think, the belief that um, it's some form of magic and some sort of voodoo. Yeah. And then there's some people who also believe that it's um, it's a con of sorts, which obviously it isn't. Um, but like, what are the misconceptions? What are the limits of it? Yeah, well, I, I think of hypnosis as being dangerously effective. You know, people are afraid that it's you know some awful uh, thing um and and i don't care much for stage hypnosis i think it kind of makes fun of people and uh but you know people make fun of people without using hypnosis too um it does play upon the idea that you can sort of take on a new point of view even if it's a an embarrassing one and act with it um but um so i don't recommend it i don't like it um but it's often the experience people have had it, you know, our, our set of expectations and beliefs allow us to do all kinds of things. You know, we've all had that, it seemed like a good idea at the time experience. And um, hypnosis can be one more of those, um, but it can be a good idea at the time. Um, and so uh, what hypnosis shows us is that we are more open to and vulnerable to social input, to seeing things from other points of view. Uh, than we usually like to think. And, um, you know, that can be a good thing. It's a way you can learn and grow. It can be a bad thing. You can, you know, believe lies. And we've had many experiences in the past few years of large numbers of people believing things that are just pure, utter nonsense. And um, so that's a part of what the way our brain is built and how we can function. And I would say, take advantage of it and use it to your benefit. And so the fact that hypnosis illustrates that we are to some extent impressionable and can take on other people's points of view is a good life lesson. Use it for the best reasons. And, you know, a lot of uh, treatment in medicine, you know, the placebo effect is not, it's not as powerful as hypnosis, but it's another example of how just doing something that a doctor asks you to do uh, with the expectation that you'll get better will in part help you feel better independent of the drug effect for example and so you know the placebo is one of the best treatments for pain hypnosis is an excellent treatment for pain and a hell of a lot safer than the opioids uh, that people are using including athletes um, and so i think it's a matter of seeing it in perspective you know there are hypnosis gets too much of a bad rap you know there are there are, you know, snake oil and lousy drugs, too. Um, we don't say medications are dangerous. We just say use the right ones. And I'd say the same thing about hypnosis. To jump all over the place in this interview, um, we spoke about kind of performance with athletes. One thing that we didn't touch on is um, skill development. Um, and a lot of the people who listen to this will be Olympic weightlifters or have some experience with Olympic weightlifting, which is a highly technical movement. Firstly, I suppose... 
how effect how effectively can we use this? And secondly, is it possible that we can effectively myelinate those pathways and make the successful repetition more likely? Um, well, yes, I think it, you know there's a rule uh, in neurobiology that neurons that fire together wire together, and uh, there is clearly brain plasticity. We reshape our brains every night when we go to sleep. We, you know, <clears throat> secrete out the detritus of, uh, of synapses that we're pruning. You know, if we, you know, we build synapses all the time in the brain when we learn and do things and including learning control over motor movements. Um, if we kept building them, our brain would outgrow our skull. So we have to prune them. We have to add some, uh, it's called long-term potentiation, uh, but we have to trim them as well. Um, and, um, when we do that, uh, we reshape our brains and, uh, clearly having experiences, um, changes the way our brains are. There was a famous study of uh, London taxi drivers in the days before Waze and things like that. London's a very complicated city and these cab drivers, you know, knew their way around every one of these crooked little weird streets. And they actually had bigger portions of their parietal cortex where we store, um, spatial relationship information. Um, so uh, I'm sure that athletes grow parts of their brain that regulate uh, how they control their bodies. And so it makes sense that you're not just building muscle, you're building brain as well to do the things that you do uh, when you perform at a high level. And so, you know, practice makes perfect. It's good to keep at it and you will change how your brain functions. We know uh, in hypnosis that you, you change the way your brain functions in specific ways. We've studied it in using magnetic resonance imaging and we find that you turn down activity in a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. It's right in the middle. It's part of our salience network. It's, it's a context detector that tells you, oh, there's trouble over there. So when you get distracted by a loud noise or something, that's your salience network saying you better pay attention. There might be danger there. Um, you turn that down. So that allows you to more peacefully focus on what you want to focus on. Secondly, you increase the connection between the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. It's part of our executive control network and the insula. That's a part of the salience network that controls the body. So it enhances your ability to control your body. And that happens in hypnosis. And the third is you disconnect from the posterior cingulate cortex. That's part of the default mode network. That's an area that you turn down, meditators turn down activity in that area because they want to, it, it's a part that involves contemplating yourself, thinking about yourself and who you are. And you disconnect what you're doing from who you think you are. That's how people manage to do things they didn't think they could do uh, in hypnosis, for example. Uh, and, and so uh, there are very specific changes in brain function that presumably you can learn to do better. And in fact, highly hypnotizable people have better functional connectivity, functional activity coordination between the executive control network and the salience network. So it allows you to, just, to say to yourself, what I'm doing now is the right thing to do. I don't have to worry about it being wrong. I'm just going to keep doing it. And I think when athletes get into a kind of rhythm of practice and performance, um, they're not thinking, well, should I do it differently or should I do something else? They're just engaged in it fully. And that's when you enjoy your workout more and when you get more out of it as well.
Are there any examples or good examples that you know of the people being able to do things that they previously thought were impossible or too challenging for them under hypnosis? Um, well, uh, yes, I've had, uh, we wrote a paper out about this once. We had a, a young woman who was hospitalized at Stanford who uh, was legally blind. Her, her visual vision was 20 over 60. Um, uh, she could barely see, and she had what we call resting nystagmus. You know, the eyes kept moving back and forth. And you can move your eyes, but you can't keep moving them back and forth for very long. And um, she had what we called a dissociative disorder. So she would shift and start acting like she was a little girl and she'd had some trauma in her childhood. Um, but we noticed that when we hypnotized her and had her do that, um, her, it, her original vision had been like, I'm sorry, 20 over 200. And in hypnosis, when she was experiencing things as a little girl, it was 20 over 60. It got much better. She could see people two floors down that she couldn't see before. And the nystagmus stopped. She was able to control her eyes enough that she had normal eye movement instead of the constant back and forth eye movement. Um, and uh, there are certainly, you know, stories of, uh, you know, people being able to, um, you know, uh, you know, a mother whose child gets caught under a car, lift up a corner of the car so the child can be pulled out. People can do things in these altered mental states uh, that exceed uh, what normal expectation would be. Yeah, that's um, a fascinating world. A really fascinating world. Like, you just think how far that could go. Um, and yeah. it just plays mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. What to kind of, I'd like to, finish off by in a, in a moment wrapping up with a few questions that we ask everyone um but firstly what do you think of the is the future of hypnosis uh well i'm hoping uh tom that it will not be seen as some weird strange thing but be a kind of normal thing a, a tool that we use to incorporate uh in our everyday life and learn how to use our brains better you know we're not, we're not born with a user's manual. We got this big brain. It's our major evolutionary advantage. And I don't think we use it nearly well enough or efficiently enough. And so I'm hoping that it will be a kind of self-training skill that anybody can and will use to help uh, better manage problems like stress and pain and anxiety and uh, control their habits, uh, help program themselves to make better use of their time train better. Uh, I think it could be a part of everyday life. And that's why uh, we developed Reverie as a way to teach people how to use this as a wellness skill uh, to help regulate their days better and, and manage to sleep better at night. And so I think it's a natural, there's a reason why we have this ability. We might as well make use of it. It's not some artificial thing we're adding. It's taking advantage of a skill we already have. And that's why I hope people will use Reverie as a tool to learn how to better manage their brains and their bodies. What books have you gifted most to people? What books have I gifted most to people? That's an interesting question. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm interested in Nestor's book on, on breath, on breathing. I think mm -hmm. that's a very interesting book, and I've shared that uh, with a number of people. Uh, Chicksent Mahai's book Flow is a very good one about getting into these altered uh, uh, mental states. Um, uh, I uh, uh, 
I will mention that, that we've written a textbook for people who are seriously interested in hypnosis called Trance and Treatment, Clinical Uses of Hypnosis. Um, uh, and it, it, it's meant primarily for, you know, psychotherapists and others using it with patients, but it tries to explain clearly how uh, hypnosis works. Um, the Dalai Lama has written some wonderful books on my being mindful, uh, and John Kabat-Zinn has has to wherever you go, there you are, and full catastrophe living are two excellent books on on meditation. Um, so um, those are things that I think help people to explore alterations in and expansions of consciousness in ways that we can make better use of our brain and our body. What habits do you perform on a somewhat regular basis for your own mental health and performance? What do I do for myself? Yeah. Um, I will. I when I was uh, when I was learning to water ski, I, I kept winding up with my face in the water. You know, it just wasn't very. It just wasn't working. You know, and uh, I have better lower body than upper body strength, and it required a lot of upper body strength to do. And I just hypnotized myself before I did it, and I said to myself, "Arm straight, knees bent." arm straight, knees bent, because I was sort of doing the opposite. I was pulling back with my arms and keeping my legs straight. And I started water skiing after that. I could just do it, you know. And so when I when I water ski, I still tell myself that. And I did it in a state of uh, self-hypnosis. And then finally, where can people find out a little bit more about you and, and also get involved in Reverie? Um, so the the Reverie website is www.reveri.com, uh, reverie.com. Um, I've published, you know, probably 150 papers on hypnosis, doing research on it, and people can do, you know, lit searches uh, with my name and, and hypnosis, and they'll come up with a bunch of uh, uh, publications. Um, there, is, there are two professional societies, the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis and the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, where you can find good practitioners who are fully trained and licensed as mental health or, or medical health professionals, doctors, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists who use hypnosis. Um, and the International Society of Hypnosis as well, you can find on, uh, on the web. Um, uh, and, uh, there are other, um, you know, more popular sources of information about mindfulness and hypnosis. Um, uh, I would, but I would advise people if you're looking for it, look for practitioners who are licensed and trained in a primary helping profession and then who use hypnosis. There are a lot of people who are just hypnotists out there and some of them may be good, but a lot of them aren't. And, um, you, you want to, have the benefit of someone who understands the phenomenon of hypnosis, but also understands psychotherapy, medicine, dentistry, whatever their primary profession is. Makes sense. One thing I did forget to ask is on yes. the Human Lab podcast, um, Dr. Human mentions you um, the, the aspect of voice and like having some sort of impact on it. And it, it only really piqued my interest because I've had people say they listen to this podcast because of my voice. And they find it relaxing and therapeutic. And there's obviously something about, well, if you look at binaural beats and the way they affect the, the human brain, like there's, there's something. Is, is there any truth in that and involved in hypnosis? Well, I think of hypnosis, uh, Tom, as mostly 
um, you know, a capacity that one has within oneself or one doesn't have uh, that one can use. But I do think that there are things about the way you, uh, let's put it this way, uh, you know, as social creatures and as social creatures who evolved from, you know, very primitive times, you know, like yesterday in Ukraine, uh, where, you know, the major dangers to you were either animals or other humans, marauding humans. Um, and uh, um, we have to get pretty good at detecting either sources of support or threat. You know, that's what we need, you know, to survive, we had to do that. And so I do think that our auditory senses are prepared to sort of sort through the tone of voice to say, is this someone who is going to threaten me and cause me to have to fight or flee? Or is this someone who's going to invite me to safely turn inward and build my own inner experience? And I like your voice. I think you have a sort of soothing voice with some uh, emotional tone to it that indicates that you're interested and, you know, you're more likely to help than hurt, you know. Uh, and I do think that having that tone of voice allows people to kind of put aside their defenses and turn inward. And um, so I think that helps. I mean, people tell me that they sort of tend to feel that way when they hear me talk. And I hear some of that in your voice, too, that you invite engagement. You don't put somebody off or make them worried or anxious. And uh, that's important, I think. Interesting stuff. I was just going for the compliments at the end. That's all I was looking for. Yeah, well, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Spiegel. I, I can't tell well, you how much I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Tom. Would you send me the link when, uh, when it's up and running? Absolutely, we'll do. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to such a wonderful conversation with Dr. Spiegel. I think we'll all agree that that was pretty damn good. Later this week, or actually early next week, we're going to be releasing part two of the coach special series on how to master a coach's mindset. So if you're a coach who knows your mindset needs work, or you're struggling financially, or you want to kind of connect with your athletes better, or stop burnout, or just going to be a healthier, happier you, then this is the podcast series for you. And we're also going to be releasing a podcast next week with Mindset Coach for Emily Rolf, Brett Piperni, which I'm just about to record now, and I'm stoked to do so. See you next week for another episode of the Limitless Athlete Podcast. <laughs>